0: This is Polar Voices, I'm Kelsey Gabrowski. In a renovated 19th-century vacation home-turned research center, Earth system scientist Max Holmes walks past a freezer that holds collections proving all the places he's been. Amazon, Congo, Coloma, Yukon, a few drops from each river wait in the freezer for when they are needed far down the line. Over the years, Holmes has assembled a liquid library.
1: Yeah, and I'm interested in river water chemistry, like a physician's interested in blood chemistry. So if you go and get your annual physical, they usually take blood. And the, you know, the, the physician's not really interested in your blood per se. They're interested in what the chemistry of your blood, and particularly changes in the chemistry of, of your blood over time, can tell you about the health of the individual, about your health.
0: Holmes works at the Woods Hole Research Center in Massachusetts. He focuses on the six largest rivers that affect the Arctic ocean ob Yenisei, Lena, and Koloma rivers in the Siberian Russian Arctic, as well as the Yukon and Mackenzie in North America. When collecting, Holmes stands close to where land and ocean meet, in great expanses of wetland known as river deltas. The water there can tell him a lot about the health of the rest of the river.
1: Really what excites me about the Arctic and what scares me about the Arctic but what scientifically what excites me is the potential impacts from changes in the Arctic to the global climate system. Um, so yeah, that's what keeps me going back. that's what keeps me excited as a scientist. that's what keeps me concerned as a you know as a citizen, as a person, as a father, I'd say.
0: Follow any of those Arctic deltas upstream to the great rivers and tributaries, uphill to small creeks, and to trickles from mountain ridges. As we make this journey along the river's watershed, the thick layers of soil that remain frozen year-round, called permafrost, lie beneath our feet, frozen in place and filled with nutrients. These nutrients, including carbon, pour out from thawing permafrost, but very few make their way all the way to the deltas. Instead. Microbes along the way gobble up the nutrients. These microbes break down the organic carbon that's been locked away, turning it into carbon dioxide, which is released into the atmosphere.
1: What will be the fate of the ancient carbon that's locked up in permafrost? Uh, This is carbon that's built up over thousands and thousands of years in frozen ground in the Arctic. And as the Earth is warming and the Arctic's warming, the balance is starting to tip, and some of that carbon is going to be released to the atmosphere, which can accelerate, amplify global warming. So a big question is, you know, just how quickly is that going to happen? What does that mean for global climate? What does that mean for our efforts to manage global warming?
0: At the 2015 Paris Climate Conference, 195 countries signed a legally binding global climate deal to limit their emissions and submit national climate action plans. The goal, keeping average global temperature increases to less than two degrees Celsius by the end of the century. A two degree temperature increase is predicted to have catastrophic physical, social, and economic effects. But permafrost thaw threatens even that target.
1: What that means is that, you know, permafrost makes the job of controlling warming, global warming, a lot more difficult. Loss of carbon from permafrost can greatly complicate efforts to keep warming below 2 degrees C.
0: The effects are not only global, but profoundly local. In the north, many communities see permafrost destabilization every day. University of Lethbridge researcher Phil Bonaventure examines these impacts in northern Canada.
2: I mean, if you, if you walk along Front Street in Dawson City, you'll see buildings that have been tilted over. These are relatively old buildings, though, in a lot of ways. These are things that were not necessarily considered 100 years ago.
0: Bonaventure says permafrost is highly variable across northern Canada, but that variability is hard to resolve in current permafrost models. Just like pixels average out all the colors in a low-resolution photo, Grid cells and models average out the variability in permafrost distribution across the Arctic landscape. He says there tends to be more permafrost in valleys where people settle. This is because valleys tend to accumulate water that runs off steep slopes. And those patches of permafrost are sensitive to thaw.
2: So this is the equivalent of, pretty much, you know, burying a few ice cubes in a sandcastle that you you make. And while it's cold, it has structure. But once it thaws, and the water, the ice, basically starts to turn into water, what we see is that it loses its solid structure. When that happens, and when it actually turns to water and drains away, we see subsidence, which is basically a cave-in type of thing.
0: Bonaventure's maps show where it will be easier or harder to build in the future as the permafrost retreats. Even small patches of permafrost can impact infrastructure and communities, particularly as it thaws.
2: So at the end of the day, my, my maps and my models that I've worked together with my colleagues, well, they essentially give us, you know, an idea as to the distribution of something that we can't really see.
0: Tuyara Gavrilova lives in a densely populated city in eastern Russia, Yakutsk. She's an economist and research professor at Northeastern Federal University. Yakutsk is on the banks of one of the largest rivers in the world, the Lena.
3: In the case of uh, Republic of Sakha-Yakutia, the area of uh, Republic is huge, more than three million uh, square kilometers. And there is a very low density in Yakutia. But in fact, we have the urban areas with a high density of population. And these urban cities Allocated on the biggest river of the world, Lena. And, of course, the flooding on Lena, Lena River is a, a very difficult problem for our government and for our population.
0: Traditionally, communities in Yakutia were small. During the Soviet government, larger towns were formed as strategic settlements. That means shipping in outside resources to areas prone to wildfires, floods, and permafrost degradation. Gavrilova says the present day economy in both rural and urban eastern Russia relies on people staying in small settlements. But many people are moving to Yakutsk.
3: In the case of a big flooding, it will be uh, as a result we will uh, face with a growth of damage, economical damage from natural disaster.
0: Nikolai Shiklomanov is a scientist at George Washington University who tracks permafrost, particularly in Russia, he says many settlers fled to Western Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now the infrastructure in these communities is aging. And Sheikh says warming only complicates things.
1: Because it's not just climate. It's people are messing with the, uh, with the environment. And whatever people do, for whatever, just building a building, a road, they're messing with, uh, you know, ground storm, region, with the, sort of with that energy balance at the surface, which always results in sort of a degradation of uh, of permafrost.
0: As a result, he's been managing the oldest international permafrost observational program for 10 years now. The Circumpolar Active Layer Monitoring Network, or CALM, spans 240 sites across the Arctic and subarctic, and is adding on stations from the Antarctic as well.
1: Right, so basically, it's sort of like a network of weather stations, only for, only for permafrost.
0: Holmes is also tied to a network of sites that capture snippets of information about their surroundings, known as the Arctic Observing Network.
1: Until ironically, sort of recently, the um, observational network has has. Uh, not collapse, but it's certainly not as strong as it used to be. I and mean, that's happening not just in the Russian Arctic, but around the Arctic. Some of the observations that we need most um, aren't happening with the sort of frequency and intensity that they used to.
0: Holmes and colleagues aren't sitting back and watching that resource waste away during such a critical time. To encourage a new generation of Arctic observers, he brings students to the Siberian Arctic for what is known as the Polaris Project. These are young scientists from all around the US and Russia
1: most of them, that's their first experience in the Arctic, um, and their first research experience like this. And our hope is to kind of hook them and, and keep them involved, keep them engaged in, in Arctic research.
0: To hear more from permafrost researchers or to listen to more episodes of this program, visit the Polar Voices page at polarhub.org. Polar Voices is produced by the UA Museum of the North in collaboration with the Arctic Institute of North America as part of the Polar Learning and Responding Climate Change Education Partnership.